The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. On the non-Christian position, man is actually here by chance, and therefore his intellect, and that's what modern thinking actually says. Of course, Greek thinking wasn't ready quite to come that far down, but modern thinking comes out of Greek thinking as a consistent, more consistent expression of the same principle of human autonomy. It says man is made of water, or as Sop talks about ooze, mud, or what have you, it doesn't make any difference. At least it's a liquid, and it's nothing but liquid. There's no solidity to it. Now, how can you think of a drop of water in the midst of the Pacific Ocean, or the Pacific is much too small, you should take an infinitely extended ocean, a bottomless ocean, and then suppose a little drop of water try to stand out by itself, separate from that infinitely extended bottomless ocean, say, now, cogito ergo sum. That is, I think, therefore I am. Now that's what Descartes did. Descartes starts with cogito ergo sum. Now, Descartes lived in Holland, but he didn't have a drop of Dutch blood in him any more than <laughs> our good friend in the corner there. See, the young has been deceiving us all the time, but. Under my pressure, he finally had to come out with the truth about himself. <laughs> Mr. Graham said he thought we'd reach the saturation point with Dutchmen around here. So we've subtracted one. There's just uh, Mr. Henderson and myself, honest to goodness, Dutchmen less, uh, instead of fake ones. Uh, now, Pogito Ergo Sol. Now, who is this man who thinks and who says he is? Well, that's the beginning of modern philosophy. He's a good Catholic. Sure he is. He goes to service, and he dies in the Catholic Church and all of that. Religion, that's the matter the Church has. But I'm a philosopher. As a philosopher, I have to start from reason and reason as it is in myself, and so I have to start from myself. And I'm certain of that. You see, ancient thought had run out into the swamp that... Here was the form of truth, but it was not connected with the things. St. Augustine, who was at the early time of his life still influenced by this Greek philosophy, Platonism, tried to prove God's existence, too, in a rationalistic sense, and then he said, God exists because it's true, even if it's true that God does not exist, it is still true that he exists. That is to say, then he still exists, even though that he doesn't exist. In other words, the idea of God is always there. Well, you see what's left then of God. Nothing. The Christian religion doesn't have a principle that's called God to which you ascribe existence, which you hypostatize. You, have, you start from God, the triune God. God that is not the triune God, is not the living God, is not the true God, isn't God, is just an abstract principle. Now, in modern philosophy, they knew 
that nothing of this sort is valid, and so Descartes starts anew and says, I must start for myself, cogito ergo sum. And he says, everything that is as certain as I am of myself, I can try to say that I don't exist, but I still think of myself as existing. Even when I doubt, then it is I that doubt. Now, he thought he had a solid ground. The reason why he couldn't doubt himself existence is because he wasn't what he was, thought he was. And that's true of every man. Every man knows at bottom, not to Stontheon, that he's a creature of God and that he is a sinner. Now, that's not that he admits self-consciously. If he did, then he would repent. Only he has repented really, truly, spiritually. Existentially knows himself, but intellectually. Now, what does he start from? Well, from this drop of water. By definition, the ocean is surrounding him, and yet he wants to prove the existence of a God. He starts from there. Well, it's, it's, it's as certain as a drop of water. Suppose you're in the Niagara Cauldron at the bottom. And you're, or we'll say, you have fallen. Now, whom shall we put in that cauldron? Mr. DeYoung, I guess. <laughs> now, who would jump in after him to take him out? Anybody here loves DeYoung Wolf much enough that would jump in to save him? Hendrickson, would you do it? Huh? <laughs> Mrs. Hendrickson would. Very well. All right. Here's Mrs. Hendrickson. <laughs> now there's two to be saved. <laughs> Who would jump in after both of them? Anybody here volunteer? Mr. Hendrickson. Now there's three to be saved. In other words, in the nature of the case, you can't build a ladder of water if you're a drop of water. And then make the ladder, the only stuff you've got to make ladders with is water. And the only, if you could make a ladder, the only place you have to stand it on is water. And then you couldn't get to the first rung, let alone get to the top rung. A man of water, made of water, in the water. He's trying, here's the iceberg. And he's trying to get on top of that. Well, it's a foregone conclusion that he can't even say cogito ergo sum. Nobody can say cogito, I think, unless he is a Christian. That is, nobody can identify himself. The principle of identity is impossible intelligently on the non-Christian position. Because on this position, to identify himself, he would have to identify himself in relation to all reality, which it Obviously, by his own statement, he can't do. Now, that is the, is the basis of modern philosophy. And I'll try to bring out tomorrow the steps by which that has come down into modern existentialism. Modern existentialism is but the continuation. Kant comes in between then Kierkegaard and the Protestant philosophers are attempting to try to attach themselves to Kant, who is supposed to have saved science and given us a new foundation from which we can start up into the other world. Well, nobody can give you such a foundation. Some have said, as Aristotle is the philosopher of the Roman Catholics, so Kant, by his philosophy, made room for faith, and he's the philosopher of Protestantism. Well, he is the philosopher of modern Protestantism, of Paul Tillich, Emil Brunner, Karl Barth, 
Reinhold Niebuhr, Richard Niebuhr, Nels Ferre, and the rest of them, they do base their hopes upon Immanuel Kant's philosophy. And they are making a synthesis, or trying to, between Christianity and this effort on the part of the natural man to interpret himself the way the Roman Catholics are, have done it with Aristotle. And the peculiar interesting thing now is that Aristotle and Kant, the two great philosophers, the new Protestantism built on Kant and the Roman Catholicism built on Aristotle are now fast becoming friends in the ecumenical movement. And they are at basically, basically in agreement with one another. Now, if there's any particular question, I'd be glad to have you ask it now. Well, that isn't the important point, confusing theology. I say they're building themselves on a non-Christian philosophy, Immanuel Kant's philosophy, which is as hostile to the Christian religion as was Aristotle's philosophy. In other words, their epistemological foundation, their theory of knowledge, was taken out of Kant's critique of pure reason. this morning about modern philosophy in the same way that the other day we talked about ancient philosophy. We saw that Paul the Apostle challenges ancient thinking by saying, where are the wise, where are the scribes, where are the disputers of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, the world by its wisdom knew not God, the true God, it pleased God, the true God, save by the foolishness of preaching, by telling the simple story of Jesus and the resurrection, them that believe and are given the grace by the spirit of regeneration to believe. Now, the question obviously is, would Paul, if he came back today, have the courage to say that self-same thing again if he heard of and understood to some extent the developments of modern science and of modern philosophy and of theology? Would Paul dare to say the same thing? And must we have the courage to say that same thing? Well, the answer is that Paul no doubt would do that same thing. And to prove that as best I can, I want to review with you some of the high spots of modern philosophy in order to point out that it controls also modern theology and modern science, of course, as well. Now, we said yesterday that modern philosophy begins with Descartes, cogito ergo sum. Now that is pure subjectivism. It stresses this point that we were making in the first, first lecture, namely that when man rejects God and says he is not a creature of God, then what is he? Well, then he has to do without God in the nature of the case. <coughs> Suppose that little child leaves home and says, I don't like it at home, it's too cramped here. I'm going west. Well. What's a child by himself going to do alone? He has no money, can't take care of himself, and so man says, here I am. Now, if you can imagine a child saying, I wonder if I have any parents. I wonder if that woman might be my mother, or that man my father, or are there such things as fathers and mothers? Well, how fantastically foolish is that? Well, so foolish is it for man to start from himself as autonomous, a law to himself, the ultimate reference point. That's precisely what man has been doing ever since the fall. It is that which is being done and has been done in the development of modern as well as in ancient philosophy. Now, Descartes says, I think, therefore I am. But he wanted to, nevertheless, of course, 
connect himself with his environment. And so he started to talk about this environment. And then he wanted to explain this environment because he was, after all, a believing Catholic in terms of God. And so he tried to prove God's existence by as what you call, as you know, the ontological proof, the proof that God must exist because we have an idea of a perfect being, something like Anselm, not quite. Now, what kind of God did he get by that kind of proof? Well, he got a God who is just an abstract principle. He started with the idea of man's sufficiency, of his not being a creature, so he certainly could not prove that God is his creator. That would have completely destroyed his assumption, his starting point, which he was not willing, never was willing, of course, to give up. Well, now, the result of his effort was that he was over here and the world over against him. The world and man can't be brought together in harmonious union except on the presupposition of the Christian religion that man is made by God, the world is made by God, its laws are what they are because of the providence of God. Man is made for the world, the world is made for man, man is subdued to subdue the world to the glory of God. Now, Descartes broke all of that to pieces. If you took a vase, beautiful vase, and dropped it on the cement sidewalk, it would fall to pieces. Well, that's what man did, or tried to do, with this world. He cut himself loose from God, cut strange between God himself, the dependence of God he tried to remove, and so he must die. He can't breathe. That's the umbilical cord which he cuts and cuts himself loose from the source of life. Now, that, therefore, is the result. And the result, as far as the attempt to understand reality is this, namely, that man has a principle of logic by which he now, as Descartes did, tries to prove what exists and what doesn't exist, what can exist, what cannot exist. And then he stands over against that. And in other words, he is here, he is autonomous, here are all the facts, as we saw before, not created, just there, chance facts, and then he's got to tie all those together. Now, it is as hopeless to do that as it would be if you were to have a, create a string of beads which had all the beads an infinite number, not just a few billion as Kennedy's dollars, but an infinite number of beads. They must be strung and you must string all of them. And you can't even string two of them because no two beads, by definition, they have no holes in them. Now, I had girl come in my class one time with a string of beads, and she was obliging enough to take a pair of clippers and cut them in half, or cut the string. What happened was the only damage done was that a few beads were rolling over the floor, and we collected eventually all of them again and tied up the string. But if there were no floor there, if the, there's a bottomless pit, and there's an infinity of number of beads, and no two holes in have hole, not one has a hole in them, you can't even string two of them. Now that's as impossible as the non-Christian science procedure is. It assumes that it has an intelligible scientific construction of things, at least a part of this world. It can't have any construction that is intelligible at all because it must, in the nature of the case, since God does control all things, he controls all the beads, 
He is omniscient not only, but he's omnipotent. Things are what they are because he has made them to be what they are. And he will, he controls the future. And consequently, he does, he has strung, so to speak. He has all things. By the determinate counsel and foreknowledge, we are told, even Jesus Christ was slain by their wicked hands. Well, now, then, when man cuts that out, then he himself has to do precisely the same job that in the Christian religion God does, control all things, know all things. Well, now, that he cannot do, of course, and he knows he cannot do it in the sense that man can know everything in the flat, ordinary, daily sense, but he assumes that he knows enough that God, that kind of God, does not exist and cannot exist. Now, that is virtually to assume omniscience for himself, not omnipotence in the sense that he can make stuff, no, but omniscience. Well, now, that means that this development, which was that of empiricism, Locke, Berkeley, Hume, was stressing, well, we got to go to the facts. We got to accumulate facts. But what happened was that Locke, in his book on knowledge, says we must proceed, not like Descartes, with innate ideas, as though a man has in himself principles of full understanding what things can be, must be, but we must just open our eyes to see, like a camera. You let the facts enter in and then imprint themselves upon my mind is a blank. My mind's a tabula rasa, a blackboard that has really been cleaned, which happens only once in a great while in our seminary. Now, Therefore, he says, that's going to be the way to get knowledge. Well, of course the mind contributes something to the knowledge situation. God has made man in his image. Man is not a blank. We have seen already that man knows God. The knowledge of God is indelibly imprinted on him. So to wipe that out, man says that his mind is a blank and that the facts are just there. Well, the result of that is that through Berkeley and Hume, step by step, skepticism comes about. All beads, no strain. Nothing but unrelated factualness. You can't have science that way. Science means the togetherness, the connectedness, the building up, the increase of knowledge of a body of knowledge. Science became utterly impossible. On the other hand, Spinoza, following another aspect of Descartes' thinking, knew that the mind does contribute, but then he didn't think of that mind as a created mind either. Consequently, he made the mind of man contribute what actually only the mind of God contributes, the determining power by which facts are what they are. Accordingly, Descartes says, things are the law order of connection of things is the, the same as the order and connection of ideas. Ordo et connectio rerum idem est ordo connectio idearum. Now, that is, of course, perfectly consistent. That's doing precisely what in ancient philosophy Parmenides said when he said, things must be what I can logically think them to be, and only that can they be. Well, then what happened to man, the individual? Well, then, of course, he was absorbed into that eternal, changeless being. Time and change is meaningless. History is no significance. And so, again, science is, is impossible. Here you have nothing but pure identity. 
and science means addition to, to that which system which you have. Here you have nothing but new facts, not no old system. Here you have nothing but old system, no new facts. Kant knew that. He saw that. And how did he want to solve it? Well, the great contribution, as we're constantly told, of Kant is that he saw or he saved science by pointing out that you need something out of human, you need something of, of Leibniz, you need the idea of synthesizing, adding to facts, and you need the idea of a system to which these facts are added, and therefore you must think of, you can't know that such system. In other words, Kant assumes together with all these other men that man's mind is not created, that there is no revelation of God in the world or in the mind of man, but that it is man that must solve this problem. He, as absolutely autonomous, sufficient to himself. Now then, then the uniting activity must spring from man. It doesn't spring from God, it springs from man. And so he develops the idea of the internal absolute activity of the human mind by which this mind brings together all things, the facts. You need, therefore, brute factness, he says, but you need also this, but you must give up, if you're now going to know something, the ideal that Descartes, the empiricist, and the rationalist had, you could know ultimate reality, that you could know God, or even yourself as a noumenal being. You must give all of that up. You have to pay a certain price. You have to say science is this world. Now, Mr. K reminded me this morning I hadn't used my sausage illustration. Well, now, we had sausage for breakfast, and that made me think of it again. Uh, what you see, Kant's system can be illustrated by a sausage machine. Suppose there were a nice sausage machine built into this wall. When I was a boy on the farm in Indiana, every winter we made sausages. We would kill a cow and kill a pig and then put the pig and the cow, I don't suppose the pig's feet and everything, but at least the best parts, into that sausage. And then we grind this and out come the sausages. And next summer after they were smoked, they were delicious. I can recommend them to you still. Now, the point is, nobody knows what's on the other side. I talked about cows and pigs because I know cows and pigs. But if you knew nothing of what was behind the wall, and there was a big sausage grinder built in, and the material was built in, and this thing just kept on going and going and going and going, and all the facts come out. Now, this is an important point. According to modern science, the facts that you meet, meet are like these sausages, on which your mind, as the sausage grinder, has imposed the form. In other words, you'll never find facts as they are in themselves. Because, you see, you have dark glasses on. If I walk through the area here with colored glasses, black glasses, I'll never see anything otherwise than colored, black colored. Well, man has that frame built into his mind. That's the way his mind works. He's like this everlasting sausage grinder. And therefore, when it moves around in the realm of the world, it's the realm of chance. What are facts for man are the resultant in mathematics, as you know, we talk about not the result, but the resultant of an interaction of two forces. There is, to be sure, a raw stuff. We need that, but we never see the facts as these empiricists still thought we could. 
but what we see is what we've made. Facts are made as much as received. They are not exclusively made. Uh, Sir Arthur Eddington has a book on the philosophy of physical science in which he speaks of a kingdom of fishes, or he speaks of an ichthyologist. I don't know why on earth he couldn't say fishes. Then we'd all know what he meant. But he goes out ichthyologizing. And then he <laughs> says that there is an object of kingdom of fishes. But he says, when I throw my net out, the only fish that I catch are all the same size because they take the size or they are the size of my net so I don't get the dolphins. Yesterday the boys took me out. I don't know whether they want to get give me to the sharks, whether that was underneath at all, but they took me right near the sharks in the gulf. And uh, we came back. Now, don't you see? He says there must be an objective kingdom, but what my net can't fish isn't fish. That is for me, for me. Uh, there may be all the fish in the world, and they have to be there. It's a source of supply. But the only fish that I get are those that are in my net. And then the size of my net determines the size of the fishes. I can illustrate it. The ladies can understand that because they don't go out ichthyologizing so much. Uh, suppose you have this tray of water, tray, and you're going to put it in the refrigerator, put water in it. And then you put this divider in. Now, then freeze it, and you get ice cubes. Now, the ice cubes, you see, have the shape, the form that you, that is the resultant of the freezing activity of the water, and the shape is given by this divider. Now, that's the way, and then think of this as moving. It isn't good illustration every sense. You can't get one that does everything. Uh, uh, so then, that is Kant's contribution to modern science. That's how he saved science. That's how he saved knowledge. That's how he saved everything that man has. And that's why Kant is glorified as the greatest modern philosopher, and undoubtedly he is. But he's also the one that has more than anybody else from his urn controlled modern thinking and has led it into greater depths further away from the Christian religion. Now, you take the liberals, uh, Croner, Richard Croner, a great thinker, a theologian too, writes and says, Kant is the philosopher of Protestantism the way Aristotle is of Roman Catholicism. Well, what's left of Protestantism? Kant's, Kant has, in his critique of three, reason, he has three divisions. Here we have the intuitions of sense, and here are the categories of understanding, this thing that I'm talking about. Just like here's the waiting room. You get in there, and the secretary of the doctor puts you here if you're pale-faced. She already knows enough that you're likely have some disease of a certain sort. If you have a color such as I have, then you get put over here, and then you have high blood pressure, she thinks. But she's not the doctor. The doctor gets you, and then he analyzes finally what your disease is, what you are, what's to happen, what's to be done. Now, here is a final, finished interpretation of all of life by man who excludes God. But he has written a book on religion. He says, religion within the limits of pure reason alone. And he comes to the conclusion 
to be sure that man must start from himself the way Descartes started, but that he must not think of himself as in this world of facts, of science, because then he would be ground up in this sausage grinder, or, if you will, in the shredded corn shredder, and therefore he must assert that he is free. But free, in that sense, means the exact opposite of being known. You don't know yourself, because what's known is known in the scientific sense. If you were to be known, you would have to re be reduced to one of these square, you'd have to get this round thing into a square hole. Now, that wouldn't work. Now, Kant's philosophy, therefore, says there is no knowledge of God in the traditional sense that proves for the existence of God, Anselm's proof, and, and all, the ontological proof, the cosmological and teleological, that there is a cause back of a cause, and that therefore there must be a final or ultimate or original cause. He says it's absolutely fantastic folly. That's what Kant says. Again, if I may refer to my agricultural background, my father did a mean trick on an old cluck hen. She was speckled hen, a real speckled hen, and a good brooder. So he put duck eggs under that poor hen. And after a while, when they were brooded out, out come little quack, quack, quacks instead of little chicks. And then, of course, the trouble began when here was the water. And here was the old hen, cluck, 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 and her little ducks would go in, which she thought were her children, were chickens, where it's weren't. They went out into the water. Now, Kant would call that an anabasis as allogenos, a running that's unfair to the old cluck hen. That is to say, uh, you go out into a field where the old hen could not follow them. Well, the whole point of modern science is that science is like this floating island, surrounded by and floating upon an infinite, bottomless ocean of chance. Now, you've got to have that ocean of chance. That ocean of chance is the place where God is, and that's what God is. That's all he can be. Did I say the other day that Anaximander's Apeiron was already in as it were, the same sort of thing that Bart believes, here you have it in modern form. This is the idea that this beyond is unknown and unknown. Man builds the altar to the agnostoitheo, the unknown God and the unknowable God. Now this agnosticism is built into modern science and into modern philosophy and into modern theology. It's all exactly the same. It all comes from Immanuel Kant. Here, if you go to a restaurant, they sometimes have these fancy French names, you know, that I can't read. And, oh, salad of this and salad of that, you know, all kinds of... I know it's all lettuce. And so I'm not worried at all. I like lettuce. Now, don't you see all the names, the fancy names that are given, but they all assume that man is autonomous, that there is a brute factual, infinite area... And that's exactly what is Kant's contribution, according to Norman Kemp Smith, the greatest commentary on Kant, is that he introduced this absolute irrationalism, that the facts are not what any of the great preceding philosophers of modern, of ancient thought, Plato or Aristotle, still hope they might discover them. There is no hope of ever, no matter how much you increase your speed, or no matter how much further you go, you're always 
going into an infinite which has no direction, and it makes no difference which direction you go because there is no direction. Now, then comes the question, what after that? Well, after that, you get this development I'm taking for convenience, the line of development which Heinemann, a German philosopher, gives. He says, first comes Geist, philosophy, or spirit philosophy, 50 Schelling and Hegel, particularly coming to its climax in Hegel, who said that all reality is going on a process. You see, even in Hegel, who was called the rationalist, because he said the real is the rational, the rational is the real. Nevertheless, he's a post-Kantian, a Kantian rationalist, in the sense that the real is the rational, so far as man understands it, and there is, it's, everything is in process. Pantare, everything flows. Heraclitus said that already. And, and so also, in this modern thinking, everything flows. And that's the beginning of modern existentialism. Existentialism is usually set over against Hegel, and it is over against that. But it's much more like that, because they're all children of Kant. may have difference in appearance between brothers, but they all are of the same father and mother and look like each other to an extent. Well, now then, you have this first period of Geist philosophy, 50 Schelling and Hegel. And I'll not spend any more time on that because that was still the position which, in which man thought, to some extent, that he could get an exhaustive interpretation of reality, even though he already himself said that ultimate reality is non-rational. But then, as a reaction to that, comes Leibniz philosophy, life philosophy. I'll not mention these names, they won't mean much to many of you. There was a reaction to the idea that man, by his intellect, could understand. Why not live yourself out the will of man? In the middle of the 19th century, you have Schopenhauer von Hartmann and a lot of others who think that ultimate reality is like one great big boil. A blister for, with blisters. Man wills, he has the will to do this and the will to do that, and it all comes to its climax. And Nietzsche, der Weltsurmacht, also sprach Zarathustra, that man is part of that rational, irrational movement, being is that, and that's life. And we may as well live out this thing. We mustn't repress, hold under anything that is true life. Now then comes existence philosophy, which is, of course, the thing that we are today having, sir, having with us, and that is of much more direct and practical importance. But you can see that existence philosophy just carries on this motif of Hegel and of life philosophy and goes deeper into the irrational, even. And there was Sir Kierkegaard, S.K., they generally speak of Kierkegaard, he said, Hegel, ah, he says, that bad man, a rationalist, he still thought that he could, by logic, understand something. We must get away from all of that. And he was also he, a Christian, as he said, and consequently, we must say that which cannot happen has happened. We must make contradiction a category. That is to say, we must not be afraid of contradiction the way Hegel was still afraid of it, trying to escape it by enlarging the area. Something like, was it, we were told yesterday, South Carolina would last six months. South Carolina is a little independent nation, we'll say, but then it is absorbed by the United States. So Hegel used to say, when you make an affirmation, you make it 
in the blank first and you make a negation which is the opposite of it but when you close your eyes you've said being and you've said non-being and they mean equally much to you because neither means anything to you but then you become then you introduce becoming and then this thing becomes something definite now that movement idea you see that everything is movement coming from Kant carried on by Hegel is now much more stressed more greatly stressed in Kierkegaard all is act, all is movement, and even that which was left of Hegel, of a rationalism, is thrown out of the window. Therefore, his is a dualistic dialecticism, if you will, over against Hegel's monistic. Now, but that all means that they are, he's twice over a child of Kant. And now that has been the controlling thing, and recently we have other Heidegger great German existentialist, his book, written a book, Being in Time, in which he says, reality temporalizes itself. Realität seid sich. And that's all there's to it. There is no eternal God. We know there isn't. There can't be. God himself, whatever we call God, is temporal. He's also, like Heraclitus said, involved in this flux. One being pure monism, and that forever changing and forever going on. Now, Heidegger has had a tremendous influence directly on Bultmann, who was mentioned before, which, of whom Dr. Henriksen spoke, who is the former of this Formgeschichte and of many other interesting things in theology, who says this thing, we can't. Science has proved that the world is run by laws, and certainly, when we talk about creation and redemption through Christ and the life hereafter, that is mythos, which means to say that is in the noumenal realm of Kant, of which no one knows anything, because the only realm you know is the phenomenal realm, the realm of science, and so we call it myth. I was in Great Britain once and talked to a group of women who were teachers, and uh, I talked about the difference between Bultmann and Barth and said that both of them were equally insistent that the historic Christian religion was not true because both of them were basing themselves on this modern philosophical approach. There was a girl there who had been both in Barth's classes and in Bultmann's home and she just practically tore me to pieces, figuratively of course. But she walked out with me. We were having our fish together. It was in the Depression time. And uh, she said, Are there more people like you in America? In other words, Bart, uh, Bultmann, that was bad. But Bart, because Bart speaks of saga, and Bultmann speaks of mythos. Now, she said, Mythos, that's bad. You're right. But saga, that's fine. You're wrong but they both mean essentially, negatively at least, the same thing. They are, both of them, a denial of the possibility of any knowledge of God, of God revealing himself in nature so that man is without excuse, of God in Christ speaking redemptively in nature, in history, and giving himself for us in our place. All of that substitutionary atonement is, of course, from this point of view, utterly impossible. Dare we follow Bultmann was the title of an article you remember in Christianity today, today, a while back, and of course the answer was, we don't. But the question is, dare we follow Bach? Is he any better to follow? Now, 
I don't know where you get your groceries here. I haven't seen a single grocery town in a grocery store in town. Are there any A and P's here? No? Any American stores? Or what do you have anyway? Do you eat? Apparently we eat. Well, the point I'm trying to make is this. You see, I go to the American store and I get, my wife says, get five pounds of sugar. We get a little sugar even if after the rise in price. Now, sugar, get it from, she just says, because there happens to be an A&P near us, sugar, A&P. And then next time I happen to come by an Acme, and she says, get five pounds of sugar from the Acme. Stop at the Acme, stop at the A&P. Don't you see, sugar is sugar, whether you get it at the Acme or whether you get it at the A&P or whatever other store there may be. In other words, whether you call it saga or mythos or symbolism, each philosopher or theologian likes to concoct his own name, but it's all precisely the same thing that comes from Immanuel Kant, namely that man is himself, to be sure, by faith he thinks of himself as free, but so far as he knows himself, he's enveloped in this intermeshing, interrelationship of, that's as hard as concrete is hard, and if you're in there, you get just simply uh, tied up in concrete. If somebody threw, threw you into a fresh mixture of concrete and let it set, what would become of you? You would leave a hole in the concrete later. Now, that's all that becomes of you. You are free because you leave a vacuum in this world. Now, then, on that basis, you postulate. You don't prove, you don't know, but your faith is a pure, irrational, non-rational assertion or postulation that some sort of something is up there, though you yourself know that you know nothing of it and never will or never can know anything of it. Now, therefore, knowledge of God is impossible. And faith in God, however, is the thing we all need. But then the kind of God that is the object of this faith is by definition a projection of man. Now that projection motif, Dr. Burkhauer has in one of his books spoken of length of the projection motif. Now that, you see, comes from Kant. You just shoot up into the sky from this floating island of science where you are, which you suppose to be solid. Now it isn't solid because it's made out of island of science where you are, which you suppose to be solid. Now it isn't solid because it's made out of ice to be sure, but when ice goes to the equator it melts, it thaws. You know that story about ten men on, what was that? And then one night one disappeared and then there were nine. And then another one, and then there were eight. So down. Why was that? Well, because it got narrower. Where, where uh, Hendrickson was standing, you see, was here. And then one morning, Hendrickson is gone. And then the next morning, there's Van Til. And the next morning, he's gone. And then there were this, and then there were that. But meanwhile, the ice also gets thinner. You see, it thaws from the top and from the bottom, the hot water underneath. And then there were none. Now, in other words, the point is that nobody knows any ultimate reality. Nobody can know, even man himself. Now, man is free. He starts with that. He is autonomous. That's to be assumed, taken for granted at all costs. Nobody must ever challenge that. Nobody in decent society talks about it to challenge it. 
Nobody dares to say that man is not intelligent to himself unless he be interpreted in terms of creation, sin, and redemption through Jesus Christ. Now then, what happens is that in this existentialist movement, Heidegger in Germany, and I'll just speak alone of Sartre in France, who has written a great big book on being and non-being and has written many plays, as you know, and one of them is No Exit, and there truly is no exit. Now, what has become of this vaunted freedom which Satan introduced in paradise that man must stand on his own feet and say there is no God, rationalistically saying there cannot be a God, there cannot be anything else. It has resulted in man's also, in addition, saying, therefore there cannot be anything permanent. I, there cannot be any laws of nature that are permanent. They are chance products, and he's perfectly right on the non-Christian basis. They are chance products, and there is no possibility of having a philosophy of science that is intelligible except on the creator-creature relation on the basis of providence and on the basis of atonement through Christ. Now, therefore, they are right in saying, and Sartre's right in saying, that if man is really to work out his own freedom the way it has been introduced by Satan at the beginning of history, then he must say that he himself is nothing. He is nothing. That is to say, is indicates something static to him, something that you could get a hold of now and say, this is it, and that, it's not that. Well, you can say precisely nothing about man, and you must only say that he is free because he is free to become what he wants to be. And so in the future he's going to be free. And the future is pure contingency. Now, this is, if Paul saw it and read it, if he read this development of modern thinking, what else could he say? But where are the wise, where are the scribes, where are the disputers of this age? Hath not God made more foolish than ever the wisdom of this world? Now, it is unfortunate that modern theology has built upon this and that you will never understand Carbard unless you see it as coming out of this background. You can get all kinds of statements of Bard which by themselves are sound as can be if you took them and gave them your own content which you've been brought up in as an orthodox Christian. But when Bard says that God is wholly revealed in Christ, he means that this wholly unknown God, if there is to be any knowledge of him, must be said to be wholly expressed in this man, Jesus, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three incarnate exhaustively. God is that which he reveals. There's nothing in addition beyond remaining in God except what he's revealed. But when he has thus revealed himself, then he is wholly hidden at the same time, wholly revealed and wholly hidden. That's the Christ event, says Bart. Now, that Christ event envelops all men. We're all part of that event. That's why all men are what they are. Their primary relation is to be fellow men with Christ, to be participant in this eventuation, which is reality. Now, there's a complete denial of the incarnation. Bart says he actualizes the incarnation. He says the steps downward of Christ's birth and his suffering and his death and his burial and the steps upward of his resurrection, his ascension to heaven 
do not follow one another in history. You see? Then if you said that, then you'd be tying Christianity into this phenomenal world. They are in the other realm, the shifta, he calls it. To be sure, they also get in here, but together, Geschichte and Historie Interactive, that's Christ. Well, dare we follow Barth? No more than we dare follow Bultmann. I mean, there is no basic difference between them, because they get their principles of philosophy, both of them, from the existentialists, and now Barth says he's beyond that very well. He still gets them from the same A&P store, or actually wherever you go, from Immanuel Kant, the big warehouse, where they all get their groceries. <laughs>